I actually want to film this video in a mosque here in Jerusalem, in the Old City. And I am heading to Salah Haddin Street to meet with Abu Hamid in the uh, cafe near the post office to ask him about whether that would be possible. Damascus Gate right behind us. And here we are on the other side of the gate heading to the post office in the beautiful Jerusalem after some fresh rain. So, unfortunately, after a bit of a wild goose chase, there was no madrasa or mosque that uh, was open to being filmed in. So, we're just going to do this back from the cabin. Welcome back. I want to take you today on a journey through four centuries and four countries tracing the relationship between Jewish mysticism and Sufism, Islamic mysticism. Now, from a strictly chronological point of view, the influence begins with the influence of Judaism upon Sufism. While many scholars have pointed out influences upon Sufism from Christian forms of mysticism and pietism, such as Margaret Smith, and from other forms such as Neoplatonic and Hindu mysticism, people like Richard Zainer, very little work has been done to show the influence of Jewish mysticism on Islamic mysticism. However, around Mesopotamia and Baghdad, where Sufism emerged from, there was also a great cradle of Jewish learning at the time in Babylon, the cradle of the Babylonian Talmud, with its great centers of learning like Surah, Pompadissa, Marsimachsia, Naradoi, and involved in these Talmudic academies were great saintly rabbis who embodied the traditions of early rabbinic pietism, which was cherished by the Sufis. Indeed, in early Sufi texts themselves, there are references to the pious men from the children of Israel, the Israeliyat, and these very tales that are repeated in Sufi sources can be traced back to sources in rabbinic literature, such as Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, one of the earliest works, of Jewish piatical literature. But we're not going to be focusing here on the influence of Judaism upon Sufism. Perhaps we'll do that in another video. What I want to be looking here is the places and moments in history where Jewish mystics and thinkers have incorporated elements of Sufism into their thought and practice. And we're going to begin in the 11th century with Bahia ibn Pakudeh, who lived in Saragossa at the time, Andalusia, now Spain. Rabbeinu Bahia or Bahia, depending on how you pronounce it, not to be confused with the 13th century biblical commentator by the same name, was a Dayan, a rabbinic judge in the Spanish city of Saragossa during the Islamic period for the reconquista of Spain by the Christians. Towards the end of the 11th century, Rabbeinu Bahia wrote a ethical treatise that is still very, very popular today. The book was initially titled... Kitab al-Hidayah al-Farid al-Kalub, which was translated by the famous translator Yehuda ibn Tibbon into Chayva Salvavis, Duties of the Heart. Now, Bakhir's work drew extensively from Arab Sufis, such as Dunan of Cairo, who passed away in the mid-9th century. The very title of Bakhir's work shows affinity to Sufism, where the belief is shared that religious duties which are upon the body, the mitzvot, or the Sharia in Islam, are not enough 
to secure one's salvation in the eyes of God, but that one has to commit to God in the heart as well and follow a inner path to lead to the divine, to cultivate experience of religiosity and not just practice. The arrangement of Rabbeinu Bachir's work into 10 chapters, 10 shiarim, also shares much similarity with contemporary Sufi literature of his time. And some of the titles of Bachir's chapters are directly mirrored in parallel Sufi works of his day. Bachir, although reticent to give credit to his Sufi sources, quotes in chapter 9 sayings which can be found from Sufis of his day, and he quotes them from the Purushim, who are literally means the separatists or the abstainers, a reference to the asceticism of the Sufis. Purushim is also a term that was used for early rabbinic movements, um, but it seems to be the case here that Bachir is quoting from fellow Sufis. Now, it's very difficult to trace with any sense of definitude the transmission of a religious idea from one tradition to another, but it seems that a strong theme in Bachir's work, which is that of detachment and equanimity, which enters into Jewish literature with Rabbeinu Bachir, seems to be very possibly borrowed from his fellow Sufis. Okay, number two is moving along to the 12th, 13th century. The son of none less than Maimonides himself, the Rabbi Abraham Avram, the son of Maimonides, at the death of his father in the year 1204, young Abraham, at the very tender age of 19, took over his father's position, becoming the spiritual leader of Egyptian Jewry, ascending later to the position of Nagid, the Rais al-Yehud, the head of the Jews of the entire country. Not only was he the most significant religious and political leader of Judaism at the time, but he was also a strong protagonist of a Sufi form of Jewish pietism, henceforth known as Hasidut or Hasidim Mitzrayim. There were different periods in history where the term Hasid was used. We have Hasid being used in Second Temple times, we have Hasidic Ashkenaz, and Hasidim of later European, which we now know today most intimately. But there was a movement born through the actions of Avram, the son of Maimonides, known as Hasidim Mitzrayim, the Pietists of Egypt. Avraham, the son of Maimonides, magnum opus, a 2,500-page work called Kifaya al-Abadin, the Compendium of the Servant of God, was a monumental legal and ethical treatise which spans the first three chapters going over his father's work. Avram, during his lifetime, was very much involved in defending his father's legacy against those who deemed it too Greek for the Jewish canon and other objections. In the fourth section of the Kifaya, Abraham goes through the Tariqa, the Sufi path of enlightenment, expounding on its virtues of sincerity, mercy, generosity, gentleness, humility, faith, contentness, abstinence, modification, and substitute. And interestingly, Abraham Maimonides says that upon the completion of this path, when one achieves the union with the divine, the one is to wear a special form of clothing, which incidentally was the very same garb that his contemporary Sufis were wearing. Somewhat shockingly, Abraham writes in his work that he had observed customs and traditions amongst his fellow Sufis, which he believed were the traditions of the original prophets of Israel, which had been lost from the Jewish people because of the tribulations of exile. And through observing their fellow Muslims, they could reincorporate aspects that originally belonged to the prophets 
back into spiritual practice, which would then expedite and accelerate the process towards mystical enlightenment, prophecy, and ultimately the messianic epoch. In this period, there was a tremendous amount of shared philosophy and thought in this golden age of interaction between Islam and Judaism. Ibn Said, a 11th century Sufi mystic from Toledo, Spain, said that the Jewish people had a special understanding of the prophets and the Torah, and that this people is a house of prophecy and the source of the prophetic message for mankind. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon them. Now, Avram Maimonides was only the first of a long line of descendants of Maimonides to be infatuated and flirt with Sufism. Abraham's son, Ovadja Maimonides, in his composition, Al-Makwala Al-Hayidya, the Treatise of the Pool, is a manual for the spiritual wayfarer, for the seeker, on their path to God. And the title and the idea of the book is based on the Sufi metaphor that the heart is like a pool, which needs to be cleaned out, emptied out, before it can be refilled with fresh, vivifying waters of God. The treatise of the pool is replete with Sufi ideas and Sufi terminology. Of course, the introduction of these ideas into Judaism did not go unchallenged, and the pietists, like many other revivalistic movements in religious history, were met with stark opposition. And despite Abraham Maimonides' political influence and prestige, he still faced fierce opposition, and his opponents went so far as to denounce him to the Muslim authorities, accusing him of bringing false ideas, unlawful changes, and Gentile customs into the synagogue. But this did not stop the fruitful interaction between Jewish thought and Muslim thought. According to information given by the Arab bibliographer Al-Qutabi, the Jews of Damascus would assemble in the house of the Sufi Al-Hassan ibn Hud in the 13th century in order to study Maimonides' guide for the perplexed under his tutelage. And when asked by a spiritual seeker for instruction, he replied, upon which road would you like to be instructed, the Mosaic or the Muslim, the path of Moses or Muhammad. Skipping along to the 16th century, into Kabbalah proper, historians have yet to take account of the full influence of the Islamic culture and environment upon the Kabbalah of Tzfat, whose leading protagonist, Isaac Luria himself, a native of Egypt. But a very interesting historical anecdote from the Turkish traveler, Elia Khalebi, who kept a travel log of his very fascinating travels, writes that in the 16th century, during the very heyday of Lurianic Kabbalah in Tzfat, there was a vibrant Sufi center, a tekia for spiritual retreats, which must have meant that there was a accommodation and room for both traditions to practice side by side. And many of the customs and traditions that were practiced by Sufism seem to be shared by the Kabbalists of the same period. Moving from Spain to Egypt to Israel, all the way back to Europe, the 18th century inaugurates the Hasidic movement, the largest mass movement of Jewish spirituality. The Hasidic leaders and masters geographically shared contact with Sufis on the steppes of Asia, and many of the doctrines of Hasidism seem to share close affinity the idea of the annihilation of the self, the bitul, which Hasidot made such a big deal of, rightfully so, shares strong parallels with the idea of Sufism of fana, of the annihilation of the self. 
And there are some striking parallels between Kabbalistic and Hasidic practice and Sufi ideas. The Kabbalists practiced a form of spiritual get-together called Bakashot, where mystical songs would be sung, which is seen as well by Hasidic movements in the forms of Tish or Fabreng and Hitfa'adut, practiced as well by the Midlevi dervishes in Sufism. In both traditions, spiritual brotherhoods were established around a saint, and the practice of Hitpodidut, of isolation, can be found also in Sufism, in the practice of Kahalawa, and the practice of Dakir. But we're not going to go into conceptual similarities between Sufism and Jewish mysticism. Perhaps we'll do a separate video looking at shared theology and metaphysics between the two traditions, which are fascinating. I wanted to just show you the historical moments where there was fruitful interaction. We live in a time with so much hatred, strife, and fighting between people, between nations, and what's most repulsive is that a lot of the fighting is blamed on God, and I think God would be deeply, deeply upset, not only to see his children fight, but to see the fights blamed on him. If God in the Bible instructs his name to be erased to bring peace between a man and wife, in the case of the Sota, how much more so would God say, Erase my name if it's the source of your conflict and fighting between two entire people. To be quite honest, I think someone has to be somewhat insecure in their own religion and spirituality, in their relationship to God, to not be able to see the beauty in another tradition and be moved by the poetry of another faith, to not be moved by the philosophy of Ibn Arabi, Al-Farabi, Al-Ghazali, Abu Yazid, of Rumi and Hafiz, in the end of the day, it is one God who we worship. And sometimes it's our own conceptions of God which keep us from seeing that. How small is your God if it cannot include the beauty of the Muslim, the Christian, and the Jew simultaneously? Peace.